0: Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in the Historic Galley section of Melbourne, Florida. It's also made possible by Florida's Space Coast Office of Tourism, representing destinations from Titusville to Cocoa Beach to Melbourne Beach. <music> This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Broatmarkle, and coming up on the program, an historic marker has just been placed in front of the home of beat writer Jack Kerouac. A film about Tupperware mogul Brownie Wise is being made into a movie starring Sandra Bullock. Derry Down is being restored as a concert venue in honor of country rocker Graham Parsons. We'll talk with author Bob Keeling, who's involved in each of these projects.
1: Sometimes we'll just bulldoze places like this and put up a McMansion and then find out later the history that was associated with it. So this time it worked out.
0: With an exciting election season
2: upon us, we'll look at contentious elections from Florida history. At the time, there were about 66,000 people living in the entire state of Florida. And just to put that in perspective, um, in 2013, uh, the daily average uh, visitors to Disney World in Orlando totaled over 50,000 people.
3: All that ahead on Florida Frontiers. Out we jumped in the warm, mad night, hearing a wild ten of man's bawling horn across the way going "Yeah, yeah." and hands clapping to the beat, and folks yelling, go, go, go! And far from escorting the girls into the place, Dean Moriarty was already racing across the street with his huge bandaged thumb in the air, yelling, blow, man, blow! And a bunch of colored men in Saturday night suits were whooping it up in front. It was a sawdust saloon, all wood, with a small bandstand near the john on which the fellas huddled with their hats on, blowing over people's heads. A crazy place, not far from Market Street, in the dingy skid row rear of it, Howard Street, uh, Folsom Street, actually, near Harrison, and the big bridge causeway. Crazy floppy women wandered around sometimes in their bathrobes, bottles clanked in alleys, and back of the joint in the dark corridor, beyond the splattered toilets, scores of men and women stood against the wall drinking wine spodiote and spitting at the stars. Wine spodiote being wine, whiskey, and beer. The beheaded tenor man was blowing at the peak of a wonderfully satisfactory free idea.
0: That's an acetate recording of Beat Generation writer Jack Kerouac reading from his novel On the Road in the late 1950s. When most people think of the Beats, the images that come to mind are probably the City Lights bookstore and Vesuvio Cafe in San Francisco, or perhaps poetry readings in a smoky jazz bar in New York. But the leading writer of the Beat Generation, the man who coined that phrase, did some of his most important work in Florida. Bob Keeling is author of the book Kerouac in Florida Where the Road Ends. I spoke with Bob Keeling inside the small Orlando home where Jack Kerouac wrote The Dharma Bums and where he was living when he found out that his first book, On the Road, was going to be published.
1: Florida played a crucial role in Jack Kerouac's career, especially because it represents his transformation from this 35-year-old nomadic nobody, this shy writer from Lowell, Massachusetts, to literally the bard of the beat generation. Not only that, he made his last edits to On the Road here in College Park, uh, here in Northwest Orlando. He also wrote uh, his follow-up, The Dharma Bums, here in the historic Kerouac House. Uh, And also, his last prolific period, was here in Orlando uh, 1957 and into 1958 wrote dozens of letters and poems, and he was finally seeing success and it really energized him. Uh, the reason why I wanted to pursue his life in Florida was to fill in those blanks because all of, much of the scholarship I had read to that point conveyed this notion that, oh, Kerouac, up Florida, that's where he went to die in 1969, over in St. Petersburg. So it was all about sort of his sad, declining years from alcoholism in the late 60s, but there was so much more than that, so much more.
0: Along with Allen Ginsberg's poem Howl, Jack Kerouac's novel On the Road is the most important work of the Beat Generation. The Beats have been described as a counterculture movement and a precursor
1: to the hippies, and their work has not been universally embraced. Well, you have to consider the historic context going back to World War II. Remember, all the soldiers are coming back. You had all these prefab suburbs going up all over the United States. And in a way, it was sort of this prefab culture. It was uh, this notion that you uh, come back from the war, and you have your 2.3 children, and you settle into your little lifestyle with a picket fence in suburbia, and you know what, there's nothing wrong with that, not a bit, but there was a certain class of, uh, of literary types, including Kerouac, including Ginsburg, who were looking for uh, another path, if you will, a creative path, and the Beats really freed up post-World War II America to pursue non-traditional lifestyles, for better or worse, to uh, celebrate the search for one's own road, if you will. And uh, uh, Kerouac's work, especially on the road, really is a love letter to the West— Um, and and to finding one's road out there. And I think that's why it resonates so much, not only in the United States, but also around the world because of this romantic notion of travel and uh, wanderlust and seeing what's out there. So in a nutshell, I think that's why uh, the beats continue to strike a chord uh, even around the world today.
0: With the exception of his mother and his last wife, Stella, Kerouac's alcoholism strained most of his personal relationships to the point of breaking he had hoped to build a communal home in orlando with his sister carolyn and her family but that never happened carolyn is buried in greenwood cemetery just a few miles from kerouac's first orlando home bob keeling
1: he never really found a comfortable transition in the middle age and i think that's one of the sad parts of his story from a personal standpoint That after all of the the great travels were over, uh, it was difficult for him to settle in anywhere. And uh, he he never really found that comfortable transition into middle age. And yes, his sister Carolyn was here, but her life ended tragically before his did uh, in 1964 when her husband left her. And her son, who was a teenager at the time going to Edgewater High School, discovered... Uh, her body in in an apartment building over just right at the Dubsdread golf course. Uh, you know, it, it just there seemed to be this black cloud over Kerouac and his family. And uh, basically he poured his life into his work and he said, my books are my children and hopefully they'll be on the shelves long after most people's children's children are gone.
0: Bob Keeling is also author of the book Tupperware Unsealed, Brownie Wise, Earl Tupper and the Home Party Pioneers. While Brownie Wise was a symbol of the idealized all-American suburban housewife of the 1950s, she was also a revolutionary figure in many ways, and she led her revolution from Central Florida.
1: Brownie Wise really, arguably, is, is the most important American businesswoman of the 20th century. And there should be a statue to her somewhere here in the state of Florida. Brownie made it okay for women to make their own money. And she did it without being a feminist. She said, I am not a feminist. I was a single mom. I had a kid to raise, and I went out and made money and did it. And she gave women the roadmap to their own liberation, in a way, getting them out of the kitchen, um, giving them an opportunity to make a financial contribution to their family's well-being. Uh, and, And that's what she did through the home party system. And she was enamored with Florida. She loved it and she spearheaded bringing the company tupperware uh, to orlando actually in 1951 they spent their freshman year in florida if you will out at what is now the executive airport in an old world war ii hangar and she and one other guy and a secretary all lived in a house on dub's dread golf course in orlando Um, from there sprung this you know multi-billion dollar company that is still headquartered here today but She had a big falling out with Earl Tupper in uh, the late 50s, in, in 57, and he decided she'd gotten too big for her britches. So we went out there to Kissimmee and fired her and wrote her out of the company history, basically, and her legacy has only started to regenerate in the last decade or so. But that's why Brownie Wise is not a household name in Central Florida and beyond.
0: Brownie Wise's cult of personality was arguably as important to the success of Tupperware as the quality of the product itself. She became a celebrity throughout most of the 1950s. Perhaps her most significant recognition was being the first woman to appear on the cover of Business Week magazine.
1: Brownie Wise had this remarkable ability to communicate with her dealers and inspire them. And when you read some of her letters at the Smithsonian, they are just amazing. I mean, that was her brilliance. That, uh, and, and, and here's a woman with just basically a grade school education. So this all sort of her genius uh, came naturally. She would inspire women to go out and do things that they never felt capable of doing. And they would compete to win her dresses and lose all kinds of weight to be able to fit into them as as prizes because that recognition from her was so important. So she had this almost mystical power and connection with her dealers. And if you look at their sales figures around this same point where you're talking about where she's on the cover of Business Week, the sales numbers were explosive through the early and mid-1950s, and a lot of that had to do with Brownie Wise's effect on the dealers throughout the country.
0: Brownie Wise was unceremoniously dismissed just before Earl Tupper sold his company in 1958. As Bob Keeling points out in his book Tupperware Unsealed, Brownie Wise paved the way for other pioneering businesswomen.
1: She had the template for what most successful businesswomen do today. You write your own self-help book, she was kind of like Cher or Madonna. She was known by one name, Brownie. And she was pre-Oprah uh, Winfrey. She was pre-Martha Stewart. And uh, so, yeah, these days it would just be accepted that you uh, write your own self-help book and that you're on the cover of all sorts of uh, magazines. But back in the day, the man who really held all the strings at the company, Earl Tupper, thought with her growing celebrity, that she was taking the eye, taking her eye off the ball a little bit and forgetting that his baby, Tupperware, was the real star of the show. And that's where the trouble started.
0: Bob Keeling's latest book is called Calling Me Home, Graham Parsons and the Roots of Country Rock. As Keeling explains, Graham Parsons came from a prominent Florida citrus family.
1: It's like a Faulkner-type story. I mean, the, the Snively family of Winter Haven... His grandfather, they called him Papa, Papa John Snively, was a multimillionaire and actually owned uh, uh, millions of acres of Uh, citrus land, and actually sold the Pope family the land upon which Cypress Gardens, now Legoland, was established, and that's why the Snively family mansion to this day sits right in the middle of Legoland.
0: Most people probably know of Graham Parsons through his association with the rock bands The Birds and the Flying Burrito Brothers. Despite Parsons' limited commercial success, his impact on other performers was significant.
1: Without a doubt. I get people saying, oh, Alan Parsons' project? No, it's not that guy. It's uh, Graham Parsons is the musician who's considered the avatar, the father of what you call country rock. He paved the way for groups like the Eagles, Firefall, Pure Prairie League in the early and mid-1970s. And you have to remember what Graham did back in the late '60s by trying to bridge this enormous cultural divide between the you know rock and roll crowd and the country crowd. In the '60s, was was far more revolutionary than it is today. Today, it's no big deal, you know, to hear a dobro or a fiddle in what might be considered a rock group's song. But back then, uh, it, it was uh, it was new. And it was revolutionary and graham parsons led the way of a bunch of other musicians sort of blending these two genres of music today the
0: lines between country music and rock are more blurred than ever graham parsons is just beginning to get the recognition he deserves for that phenomenon
1: well that's one of the reasons i wrote this book you know so much revolves around uh, and people will remember Graham, unfortunately, died of an overdose in Joshua Tree, California, in 1973, and his road manager said, oh, Graham said, if anything happens to me, do this cremation out in Joshua Tree, California. Don't give me a conventional funeral. So that's what his road manager did. He stole his body and took it out to Joshua Tree and doused it, and the cremation really didn't work. But uh, I felt that his uh, legacy should be remembered for the music, for his timeless and transformative music that to this day really still does draw a crowd. And and, and he's the reason Emmylou Harris uh, had her Country Music Hall of Fame career. There's Dwight Yoakam, there's uh, groups like R.E.M., there's Ryan Adams, all of these, of the Jayhawks, all of these alt-country uh, musicians owe a serious debt of gratitude, Steve Earle, Uh, to Graham Parsons and his pioneering vision.
0: While doing research for his book, Calling Me Home, Bob Keeling identified a youth center circuit in Florida going back to the 1950s that nurtured rock musicians such as Tom Petty, the Allman Brothers, and Graham Parsons.
1: I call it in in this Graham Parsons book the youth center circuit, and I think it's one of Florida's great sort of hidden cultural traditions, kind of like the Highwaymen painting movement was Uh, Graham and a bunch of other artists like uh, Tom Petty, for instance, the Outlaws, the group from Tampa, they played this circuit in the early and mid and late 1960s as uh, teens, so even uh, at a young point when they're underage, they were able to play what I call this youth center circuit throughout Central, North Central, even South Florida, and it gave them this proficiency as performers to go on. So by the time they're in their late teens, early 20s, they are seasoned professionals and in 1962, Graham Parsons and his garage band, The Legends, opened up for a guy named Bruce Chanel, who had a number one hit, Hey Baby, back in 62. Later on, an unknown group in uh, Europe that, that later that year named The Beatles opened up for him in 62 as well. Uh, and Graham couldn't have been more than about 16 at the time, and already he was becoming a seasoned performer. And five years later, he's headlining with the Birds at the Grand Ole Opry in nashville
0: bob keeling has crossed the bridge from documenting the lives of important cultural figures in florida to actively helping to create new culture keeling is one of the founders of the kerouac house a writer's residency program in jack kerouac's former orlando home
1: well after i'd written an article for the orlando and sentinel in 1997 to mark what would have been kerouac's 75th birthday Uh, A group of community-minded folks here in College Park approached me with the idea of establishing the Kerouac Project with an eye towards saving this historic residence and establishing it as a writer's retreat. And that was in the late 90s. And now here we are in our second decade of welcoming and housing riders literally from all over the world. I mean, we've had them. We've had a young farmer from Perth, Australia. I had an inquiry from a guy in Nigeria the other day. We've, we've had riders and residents from right here in Central Florida as well. So it's become a cultural touchstone in the community. And, and that's very rewarding because in this area especially, as you well know, we have this... Um, uh, unfortunate, short-sightedness where sometimes we'll just bulldoze places like this and put up a McMansion, and then find out later the history that was associated with it. So this time, it worked out, and now the Kerouac House is known internationally as a cultural stopping point, if you will, here in Orlando, beyond the theme parks.
0: Bob Keeling is author of the books Kerouac in Florida, Where the Road Ends, Tupperware Unsealed, Brownie Wise, Earl Tupper, and the Home Party Pioneers, and Calling Me Home, Graham Parsons and the Roots of Country Rock. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Visit us on the web at myfloridahistory.org to find out about upcoming events, find great books on Florida history and culture, listen to archived editions of this program, and much more. While you're there, click on the Join Now button to receive our journal, the Florida Historical Quarterly, and our newsletter, The Society Report. That's myfloridahistory.org.
3: Here's a song called, Vote for Me. Exercise your democratic right, vote for me. Stand up and join the fight, vote for me. I can't exactly tell you why, but here's my battle cry. Vote for me, vote for me, vote for me. If you want a larger house, vote for me. If you want a younger spouse, vote for me if you offset their mileage, the exchange is
2: carbon-free.
3: Vote for me, vote for me, vote for me. This if
0: is Florida Frontiers. Credit, Joining us now is Ben DiBiase, me. Director of Educational Resources for the Florida Historical for Society. For ben, we've been I experiencing some exciting that. election campaigns there, this there, week, but, really but not today not we're so talking so about some contentious so elections, so from elections from Florida
2: history. Yeah, that's right. We're actually going to go all the way back to May 26, 1845, to Florida's first statewide uh, election. Florida just became a state, and it was now time to uh, for the people of Florida to elect a governor. Um, and at the time, Florida was still a, a very rural state. You know, it can still, many uh, counties could be considered uh, really frontiers. There were very few people living there. Uh, in fact. Uh, at the time, there were about 66,000 people living in the entire state of Florida. And, and just to put that in perspective, um, in 2013, uh, the daily average uh, visitors to Disney World in Orlando totaled over 50,000 people. Uh, so that gives you an idea of really how small Florida was at the time. Uh, in fact, half of that 66,000 uh, number, half of those people were slaves. Um, So there were very few eligible white voters in Florida. In fact, according to the uh, 1845 election uh, laws, the qualifications for a voter, uh, essentially you had to be a white male person, uh, age of 21 years and upwards, uh, who shall be at the time of offering to vote a citizen, of course, of the United States. And uh, will uh, have had to have resided in Florida for at least, at least two years. Now it's very difficult, especially at this time, to even determine that. Uh, but um, but quite a few people did turn out to uh, to vote in this inaugural election. Now the two uh, officials who were up for election were uh, William Dunn Mosley and uh, Richard Keith Call. And Richard Keith Call is uh, probably quite familiar to a lot of Florida historians. Call was also very popular in Florida at the time. He was uh, twice governor. Uh, territorial governor of Florida from 1836 to 1839, again from 1841 to 1844, and believed he was a shoo-in. In fact, here we're looking at a document. This is a letter from Richard Keith Call accepting his party's nomination. And he says here, quote, when called by the people to serve them, the patriotic citizen cannot He will not refuse because the service required of him is unpleasant or unprofitable, nor because he aspires to another office or higher honor uh, of greater aspirations. So here he is. Uh, this It's a very spirited speech. He's accepting the nomination. Is very obviously excited to hopefully be elected governor. Uh, unfortunately, though, Call's political past kind of comes back to haunt him. Uh, Call had actually supported the presidential candidate in the 1840 election, William Henry Harrison, um, and because of this, a lot of Floridians uh, sort of turned against him. A lot of his own party turned against him. Uh, he lost the election. So our first elected governor, with William uh, Dunn Mosley, uh, served one term um and David Levy Yulee was actually elected as our first uh, state senator. Well, this wasn't the last time that Yulee was involved in a spirited election dispute. Yeah, that's right. A few years later, actually in 1850, when Yulee's uh term had actually expired, he was up for re-election, and at the time, the state senate seat was filled by a uh, joint session of the state legislature. So, um uh, Again, we have, uh, similar to the, the call situation in 1845, Yulee uh, felt like he was a shoo-in. Uh, he, again, was, was fairly popular in Florida, uh, but some of his past, uh, you know, uh, actions have, essentially would come back to haunt him, and the, the same is true today. You know, we see that quite a bit uh, today. But uh, Yulee uh, rather, was a, a kind of an inflammatory speaker, uh, and he represented Florida. He was a, very much of the, the state's rights position. Uh, of course, we had the, the Great Compromise of, of 1850, uh, which solved some of the uh, territorial disputes and involving uh, slavery and the um, inclusion of new slave territories and new slave states and the establishment of the Fugitive Slave Act. Um, And Yule really came out uh, against that, that act, uh, which was essentially in, in uh, contrast to what many Floridians felt. Uh, so when it came election time, uh, many of the uh, representatives in the state legislature uh, did not side with Uli. In fact, the, the legislature uh, split the vote 29-29. Uh, but rather than voting for another candidate, uh, there were 29 blank votes that were issued. Uh, so They actually had to vote another three times the same uh, the vote came out uh, all three times, and on the fourth instance, uh, we had 31 votes for a gentleman by the name of Stephen Russell Mallory, uh, and only 27 for Yule. The state legislature accepted it. They sent uh, Mallory up to the U.S. Senate, and he assumed his seat. A few months later, Yule uh, contested the election. It went on for over a year and a half uh, before the U.S. Senate Finally, after reviewing all of the evidence and all of the legal cases that were involved, um, they uh, upheld the decision, the original decision, and Mallory was U.S. Senate. What's interesting about that is that in 1855, uh, both uh, Yulee and Mallory were elected to the U.S. Senate, served together, representing Florida, and then in 1861, both men uh, followed their state, seceded from the Union, and served in the uh, Confederate government.
0: Now, there have been a couple of times when Florida votes were a major factor in determining who became president of the United States,
2: but not without controversy. Absolutely. So if we fast forward a little bit, a few decades, just after the end of the Civil War, in 1876, uh, what is often regarded as the most controversial uh, U.S. presidential election, um, we saw two uh, candidates, Samuel J. Tilden, who was a uh, Democratic nominee for U.S. president, and Rutherford B. Hayes, the Republican uh, candidate for president. Now, you know, leading up to this, uh, most of the South is is, uh, still involved in, in the re, uh, some period of reconstruction. Um, three of those states, Louisiana, South Carolina, and, of course, Florida, all still had Republican governors, and they had Republican-held um, uh, legislatures. Um, and those three states, no surprise... Uh, came up they uh, both states produced two electoral certificates, so each party from those three states claimed that their party had uh, won the electoral vote, and they were going to cast their vote towards their candidate uh, so it really uh, essentially ex- exploded into a national controversy and, and again, Florida was really uh, at the center of that controversy so there were nineteen disputed electoral votes that would have uh, swayed the decision either way. a national electoral committee a commission rather was established. Um, the uh, uh, The idea was to get to the bottom essentially of a lot of this controversy in Florida at least there were um instances of uh, uh, ballots that were lost. There was a train derailment. Um, There were some uh, instances of of African-Americans who made up the majority of the Republican Party in Florida were harassed, physically harassed in some instances. Uh, Ballots that were uh, ballot boxes that were stuffed. There were multiple ballots cast. Um, But essentially what happened, there was a kind of a backroom compromise. It became the compromise of 1877. Uh, The Republicans uh, exchanged essentially the uh, presidency of Rutherford B. Hayes Uh, to end Reconstruction. Uh, They removed a lot of the federal uh, presence in the South, including Florida, and it ended that 1876 uh, electoral uh, issues. And then, of course, we fast forward to 2000, and we have the Uh, Republican candidate George W. Bush and the Democratic uh, candidate Al Gore uh, in a very close election. It came down to literally a few counties in Florida. A lawsuit ensued, of course, went to the state Supreme Court uh, and then to the U.S. Supreme Court. And uh, as we all know, George W. Bush was, was handed the election. So Florida's really been at the center of a lot of these controversies.
0: Thanks, Ben. Thank you. Ben DiBiase is Director of Educational Resources for the Florida Historical Society and archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Please join us right here again next week. Until then, visit us anytime on the web at myfloridahistory.org and join the daily conversation on Facebook at Florida Historical Society. Have a great week. I'm Ben Brookmarkle. Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Jesse Baldupont Fund and by the Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in the Historic Galley section of Melbourne, Florida. It's also made possible by Florida's Space Coast Office of Tourism, representing destinations from Titusville to Cocoa Beach to Melbourne Beach.